Hi, I'm Shelley Cameron, CEO of the City of Philadelphia's Division of Aviation, and this is our podcast, Taking Off. In celebration of Black History Month, I really wanted to explore both the past and the present when it comes to breaking barriers in aviation. The Tuskegee Airmen were the first Black military aviators in the U.S. Army Air Corps, a precursor of the U.S. Air Force. And for our listeners, many of you know, I spent time in the U.S. Air Force, so it's, it's, it's a big deal to me to talk about the Army Air Corps and again, the Tuskegee Airmen. It was because of the Tuskegee Airmen that President Truman ended segregation in the military. Their perseverance, sacrifice, and service helped pave the way for today's thinking that the color of your skin cannot prevent you from being whatever you want to be. In February of 2019, it was an honor for me to interview one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, Dr. Eugene Richardson. What you may not know is that Delaware State University has a direct link to the Tuskegee Airmen, and that's what we're going to talk about today. In 1939, Delaware State University was one of six historically Black colleges and universities designated to train Black pilots who were eventually sent to Tuskegee. Since the aviation program at Delaware State was restarted in 1987, all of the school's planes have been painted with red tails, which have become a symbol of the Tuskegee Airmen and the planes they flew in World War II. I am thrilled to have Lieutenant Colonel Michael Hales, the current Director of Aviation Programs at Delaware State University. Colonel Hales, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is quite the privilege and honor to be a part of this podcast. I can't wait to talk about Delaware State University, but I really would like to start by you sharing a little bit about your personal background. You know, I think as we got to know each other before the podcast, we have a lot in common. We sure do. (laughs) We sure do. So my whole adult life was in the military, but prior to that, I was born in Dayton, Ohio, and my dad, well, he's passed on now, but at that time, he was a flight instructor growing up with aviation, being around aviation, aviation being talked about in the household. That was my experience. When I was age 13, he got a job with the FAA. His first assignment was to go to South Bend, Indiana. We moved a year later after school was out. I remember as a kid not wanting to go to Indiana. I was like, where? where? South Bend? Where? Yeah. <laughs> and you and you, you know, people, where are you guys moving? We're moving to South Bend. Where is that? You know, and didn't want to leave Ohio, but we did and moved to South Bend. I grew up in South Bend, got involved in ROTC while I was going to Indiana University in South Bend. And that started me down the path for coming on active duty, becoming a commissioned officer in the, in the U.S. Army. I wanted to fly jets. I honestly wanted to fly jets. Well, but, well, didn't everybody? Well, absolutely. But I got distracted. I, <laughs> I got distracted because the army was like, oh, well, you can do this and all this kind of stuff. And that was kind of cool. And, and it was kind of cool sneaking around in the woods, acting like your infantry and whatnot. And the next thing I know, they're asking me, hey, would you sign a contract? And I'm like, sure, no problem. I, I can do this. And, and before you know it, you're kind of locked into that pathway. But fortunately, I still got selected for aviation, which was my dream. Sure enough, that's what happened. In 1994, I graduated and then went on active duty, got commissioned. 
stayed a little while there at the ROTC department as what they call a gold bar recruiter yeah. at, at Notre Dame. And then June, I think it was, is when we moved down to Fort Rucker for officer basics course and flight school. And then a year and a half after that, going through flight school, getting my wings, went on active duty and the rest, 25 years later, here I am. <laughs> That's just amazing. So right, patterson Air Force Base with the museum, right? I'm oh sure. my goodness, yes. And as a kid, we used to go there because they showed movies. I don't know if you remember that. I do. They used to show all these movies, you know, the Battle of Britain, those kinds of things, just really just like, wow. And it was before IMAX screens, of course, but my dad used to take us down there on the weekends and we would just... He'd leave us and we would just walk around and read everything and look at all the airplanes. And if they allowed you to get close, try to touch them and some of them, you know, to go in and whatnot. And I used to think, man, I, I, I could fly any one of these. I know I could. And it was so fascinating. You could spend a week in that museum. And then, of course, all the stuff outside. I remember as a kid when Wright Pat, that Air Force base, before. You had the museum, but they still had the active duty folks there. And so you could sit on this huge bluff off of the base that overlooked the base and watch the airplanes come in and land and take off and stuff like that. And it was really cool. That was uh, childhood memories for me. So I'm trying to remember the year. I think it was 1988. Air Mm -hmm. Force ROTC did kind of the summer field training things that you had to go through. I did mine at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh, did you? Okay. I did. So I spent four <laughs> or six weeks there. Yeah. And, and the best part of the whole thing when they weren't yelling at you, like to do push-ups and, all yeah. that, you know, was, I, I know I was Air Force and you were Army. I Do you call us the chair force, like the rest <laughs> of the military? Branch? I'm trying to be kind here. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. But, is it really, um, are you guys really a military branch or is it corporate or what? <laughs> Oh, come on now. The Army birthed the Air Force. So you need to be you need to be a little bit kind to the Air Force. (laughs) Yeah, I spent four or six weeks there and and they took us to the museum two or three times. And it was it was an amazing break from the training, (laughs) number one. But number two, my God, this stuff, the history. It was just amazing. So it it sounds like the the aviation bug bit you pretty early in your life. It it did. And to that point about the Air Force Museum, one of my favorite places, believe it or not, in the museum was the bookstore, because back then, it's kind of changed now because, you know, they have all this paraphernalia you can buy, but they used to have these really detailed books about whether somebody's experience, you know, that they wrote or about fighter pilots or about bomber pilots or airplane specific stuff. And we would just go in there and just look at the books and, and they had chairs and stuff. You could sit down and you find yourself reading the book, you know, while you're in the bookstore. And of course, I, dad, can we buy that? You know, no, we don't have any money to buy that book. But, and, and of course now I go to the air and space museum or in fact, the last time we were, it's been some years, the last time I was down in Dayton and got a chance to go to the Air Force Museum. Yeah, 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 go through to see if they've changed some stuff, but go right to the bookstore, look at what the selection of, of books that you could buy or, or read or whatever. That's that's my favorite part of the museum, really, oh, the so bookstore. Cool. That yeah. is 
So cool. And then I was in South Bend where I did my undergraduate work. So I mm-hmm. was part of Detachment 225 in, yeah. in the Air Force ROTC. And then my first duty station was in Montgomery, Alabama at Maxwell Air Force Base. Yeah, so, just up the road from Fort Rucker. That's right. And Tuskegee. Yeah. Pretty wow. amazing. Yeah. I, it's a small world, isn't it? It is. And it's, and it's even smaller when you're in the military because we don't say goodbye. We just say, well, we'll see you later because chances are you'll see them at another duty station or, or whatever. And, and so it's never goodbye. And it's almost like old home week when you come together again, you know, you just pick up where you left off. <laughs> That's the family part of the military that I actually I miss even to this day. I miss it so much. I spent seven years on active duty. You're exactly right. It's that family. But but I will tell you the airport is its own family as well. And so I'm just really glad that I was able to stay in aviation, even when my time was done. Well, that's phenomenal. And when you can create that, you know, in the military, they call it command environment. But when you can create that environment in the workplace, then everybody does become like family. It's like, hey, how you doing? How's your kid? <laughs> you know, they're graduating already. What do you mean? You know, and that's the fun part. And then, of course, when people retire or leave, it's sad to see them go. I know. Well, let's transition to your time at Delaware State. So you started in 2016. Yes, March 29, coming up on six years. I at, know. So at I be- this location. Wow. I've been in Philadelphia. It'll be 11 years in June. I ne- I, I wasn't sure I was going to make it even 11 days when I first got here. But yeah, 2016 was the year I became CEO of the airport. And I've had the privilege of, of serving in that position for six years too. You know, for you, you had to have had a bazillion, technical term, a bazillion opportunities in the civilian world. Why Delaware State? Oh, that's a great question. So the last seven years of my military active duty service was doing primarily what they call security assistance. And what that means for for those that don't know, whenever the U.S. military allows uh, foreign military sales of whether it's weapon systems or whatever it is, and specific to me, Army Aviation, it's helicopters, And so when they sell those aircraft to other countries, they customarily send a team of folks over to that other country and they establish the training. So it's train the trainer. The foreign military folks become the subject matter experts under our tutelage. Well, I led teams to those foreign countries whenever they'd sell or whenever they'd purchase aircraft, specifically helicopters. And so we'd be a part of setting up flight schools and flight training, the maintenance, the operations, the infrastructure, if you will, you know, so that they can be prepared for the aircraft. Because a lot of times everybody thinks it's like kids in the candy store for some of these countries. They say, oh, you know, wow, I want that. Well, before we go out and buy aircraft, we got to have a hangar, we got to have a ramp, we got to have an airfield or that can handle that. We've got to have the navigational aids and runway lighting and all of that clearance on each side of the runway and, and the extended center lines from the runway, very much like what you all are doing there at PHL, all of that stuff. So I kind of found myself in a position where I'm representing the United States government, specifically the military, because there were times when I would be the only person for like a thousand miles that 
that was wearing a uniform or even that looked like me that was American. And so I would be the conduit, if you will, between that country's military and the U.S. military and helping them figure out those kinds of things. And I remember specifically, you know, we'd have to get into some of the engineering specs. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an architect. I never had any of that experience. But you kind of like read up, you call up some folks who are experts in that and say, hey, you know, what do I need to be thinking about? What, what kinds of things do we need to be planning for so that I can help this country's military prepare for what they just purchased? And so that was what I was doing. And as part of that was setting up flight schools and the flight training for their lieutenants, students, if you will. And I found like I was pretty good at that. That was kind of a niche, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this can translate into something in the civilian side, because I'd reached this point in my career where I'm not going to make the next rank. I don't have the key developmental positions that would check that block to get to the next rank. And I'm coming up on 20 plus some odd years. And my body's, you know, starting to say, hey, 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 <laughs> you can't keep up with the young people anymore. Yep. And so I began looking around for opportunities that would kind of do some of that and discovered institutional aviation. And when I started looking specifically, this position was open. I applied for it. They wanted to interview me right away. And then you know, they said, hey, we want to select you to come. And, and that's how I ended up at Delaware State University. Which foreign countries did you work in? Can you mention even any of them or? Oh, I, most of them in the Middle East. I've been in South Korea as well and South America. But specific to my, you know, what I was talking about with security assistance was one, Saudi Arabia spent a year over there helping them establish their flight school. The first one in the kingdom, first one in the region. And of course, that was after 9-11. In Saudi Arabia, what's unique to their military, what was unique to their military, I should say, they used to send 100% of their commissioned officers, especially those who flew, would come to the United States for military training with us. And then they'd go back to their, their home country after a couple of years and then basically fall in on their formations over there. And they really mirrored everything that the United States military did. So come 9-11, Congress changes some rules because most of the hijackers, unfortunately, came from Saudi Arabia. Congress really cut down or clamped down on that military training opportunity that they had in the United States. And so they were like, look, we still have this demand for new aviators. We need to set up our own flight school. And I was privileged to be over there at a time when that they were really trying to do that. And so I helped them set it up. I did that in Iraq as well, because after we tore apart their military, it was like, how can we reconstitute training for their officers so that they can build their own military and eventually be self-sufficient? So I ran the flight school there for both rotary wing and fixed wing flight training for their Air Force, Air Force and Army aviators. That was really cool. We had the maintenance as well. We were training maintenance personnel, their technicians to work on helicopters. Some of those folks, they'd never driven anything before and now they're learning how to fly <laughs> and how to work on very technically advanced aircraft and systems and processes and all of that kind of stuff. So that was really 
very, very interesting. And then, of course, I did that same thing down in Colombia, South America, and then retired. So it was kind of a natural progression, if you will, to come to like a Delaware State University. And yeah, and you said, and, and, you know, they hired me and kind of like, you're, you're pretty humble. Your background is pretty amazing. I can see why they hired you and said, can you start tomorrow? Cause I, I think you probably yeah. bring just an amazing amount of, of knowledge and experience and, and just the stories to the students that, that make a big difference. So let's go back to the Tuskegee Airmen though. Can you talk sure. a little bit more about the, the connection with Delaware State University? I just mentioned it at the beginning, but I know there's a lot more to that story. There is. And it's a fascinating story. I'm always excited to tell it. And when I found out, because I didn't know, I must confess, I had not paid a whole lot of attention to the Tuskegee Airmen. I knew they existed. I knew about them, had read about them, but really just, you know, okay, that's great and everything like that. When I came to Delaware State University and found out, especially found out about the connection that we have, it was just like, I got to tell everybody every opportunity that I have. So way back in 1939, you know, there's this winds of war starting to heat up over in Europe. The United States Army Air Corps at the time, because there was no Air Force, Mm -hmm. they looked around and said, hey, if we had to go to war as part of an Axis or Allies side, what would we have to offer? And they looked around, especially in their aviation assets and specifically pilots, and they were woefully short, woefully short. So there was this huge ramp up that occurred really the two years prior to 1940. One of them specifically was this legislation that was passed and signed by President Roosevelt called the Civilian Pilot Training Act. Mm -hmm. And what that did was that gave funding and authorization for flight training to occur at universities across the country. And I think they chose like 150 universities Mm -hmm. and colleges, and they established flight training right there and offered it as an elective for students to take that flight training, the intent being to build the pool of pilots in the event that there, you know, would be a draft and we'd need them to come on active duty and then learn how to fly fighters, bombers, whatever. So that occurs in 1939. Well, it was coming up also on an election year and the black press at that time said, hey, what about black Americans as well? Isn't there room for this flight training to occur somewhere where we could train black pilots? And under pressure, President Roosevelt made an amendment of the language of the Civilian Pilot Training Act, and that allowed for the establishment of flight training at six historically black colleges and institutes. A lot of them were institutes at that time. And so they did. And one of those six was Delaware State College for colored students is what we were called back then. Hampton Institute, before they became a university, was one of them. West Virginia State College, North Carolina Agricultural and Mechanical College. I think that's what they were known as. Morgan State was another one. And then, of course, Tuskegee, and it was still Tuskegee Institute. So we had the establishment of flight training here at Delaware State College at the same location where our present airfield is, the Delaware Air Park. And our students were offered the opportunity to attend and participate in that flight training. And they did. 
And I have a picture that I, when I give this briefing, I have a picture showing like one of the classes and there's quite a few students in that, in the class. So fast forward to 1940 and for whatever reason, they decided to build Molten Field down there at Tuskegee Institute. And it was Molten Army Airfield, which is the official name it was constructed. And they decided to consolidate all the training for black students down at Tuskegee. And so they closed it here and students were offered the opportunity to go down and continue their flight training and go into the Army Air Corps. One of ours did. He became second lieutenant Maxwell Honeman, and he left school. He didn't even finish college. He left school to go down there. And then, of course, every one of them became known as Tuskegee Airmen until segregation ended in the military with the executive order for Truman. And then the integration of the Air Force became a reality. But that's how it started here at Delaware State College. What a a legacy to have responsibility for. That's really just amazing. Yeah, it is a legacy. And in 1987, fast forward, you know, Dr. Daniel E. Coombs restarted the aviation program. One of the things he thought important, actually his inspiration was the Tuskegee Airmen, and that's what gave him the idea, hey, we need to restart it here. He acquired aircraft. One of the things they did was paint the aircraft with the school colors, but later on, in honor of the lineage that they had with the Tuskegee Airmen, they started painting the tails red, and they did that on one or two aircraft. When I arrived in 2016, we just instituted a new paint scheme completely that incorporated that red tail. And so when we bought aircraft in 2019, all those aircraft had red tails and they still do to this day. That's our heritage that we honor because we sent students, one in particular, to become a Tuskegee Airman. Now, he never flew fighters. He didn't go in that track. He never went to Ramatelli and and part of the 99th Pursuit Squadron and the 332nd. Maxwell Honeman became a liaison pilot to the field artillery, which are the folks that fire the big guns. And he was an observer. So he's in a small airplane like a Piper Cub. They called it an L4. And he only had his radio in the aircraft and like a 38 pistol. And this guy would, and this is what they did. They would fly ahead of the forward line of troops, right? The front line. So they're over enemy territory, low, you know, usually just yeah. the top level. And when the guns would shoot, you know, they'd shoot six, eight miles, right? He's out there spotting those targets saying okay adjust to the right or left or you know too far (laughs) yeah that's what he did the whole war what's so interesting i have his transcript for when he was at delaware state and some of the grades that he got were very flattering right and the pilot training grade he got a c i think to myself this guy got a c in that but he survives the war yeah. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure he got shot at. I'm sure there were times when he was like, this is crazy <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> but he survived and he did really well. 
and he was really accurate. In fact, one of the things I want to do, I don't know how I could do it, but I want to do the research of some of those artillery units that he supported to see how accurate they were when they were shooting on targets, because it probably had a lot to do with him and him out there basically alone and unafraid. Like if he got shot down, he's in bad guy territory. He really is by himself. That is unbelievable. (laughs) Oh man, talk about just tenacity, overcoming barriers, you know, and even in Europe, there was still this whole racial, you know, especially with the white units, because they were still segregated back then. They couldn't go into some of the officers clubs over there. They had to establish their own and all of that stuff was still happening. And here he's doing this extraordinarily brave thing as a liaison pilot, flew thousands of hours doing that kind of thing and came back, could not get a job at an airline or as a professional pilot. And so he ended up, be, you know, working for the post office until oh. he, I think he died in 94, 1994 is when he passed. What a story though. Yeah. What a story. And, the, and so when you think you got problems, right? That's right. Well, you know, I, so you, you'll laugh at this, but we had a friendly fire shoot down when I was stationed at Inderlik Air Base in, I in Turkey. That. Yeah. yeah. Two helicopters. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Blackhawk helicopters, by Black the way. Blackhawk helicopters. I flew. Yeah. Yeah. And so, by the way, I actually flew in a Blackhawk helicopter while I was at Interlick a couple of times. So okay. great respect for the Army helicopter pilots. But no, it was unbelievable when you think about the danger that he put himself in as, yes. as part of that. Every, Every day, you know, even when the weather wasn't really, you know, conducive for flight training. He's out there right above the treetops, flying around, dodging birds and <laughs> and bullets. And, and he couldn't get a job when he came back. And could not get a job as a professional pilot when he came back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm glad things are changing slowly, but changing. Yeah. And it's wonderful to see you in this position in Delaware State to have you be able to extend the legacy of his work. So. Can you talk about the aviation program that you run at Delaware State? I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know all of the different parts of your (laughs) curriculum. Oh, well, I wish I had a dollar for every time someone said, hey, you guys got an aviation program? Can you tell us about it? I'd be a rich man. I tell you, I'm thrilled with what we're doing. Our aviation program, first of all, we have two concentrations. One, which is the most popular, is the concentration for professional pilot like McDonald's does burgers really well. They don't do pizzas that well, but burgers, that's what they're known for. We're known for producing future airline pilots at Delaware State University in our aviation program. We brag that within 12 months of graduation, 100% of our professional pilot concentration majors are sitting right seat as a first officer within 12 months after graduation. That's, am- and, that's phenomenal. And that's been that way. Even the couple years before I, I arrived and then since I've been here, that's just been the huge, what I call sucking sound of the demand for pilots. You know, airlines are parking airplanes in, in a lot of places because they just don't have 
enough pilots on hand. Scott Kirby, the CEO of United, testified as just as much to Congress that, hey, this is a problem. And because of COVID, it really has exacerbated that shortage. And how that exacerbation occurred was COVID happens, everybody stops flying. And so the airlines, not really wanting to furlough everybody, offered a lot of early retirements mm-hmm. for folks who were, you know, there's a mandatory retirement age of 65. So they were offering everybody who was 64 to 60, they were offering them early retirements. And the early retirement was the same as if you retired at 65. So a lot of them looked at that and said, hey, you know what? That's my incentive. And they retired. So as things started coming back, that whole group of first officers then became captains, right? Because they vacated those seats. And then they started hiring from the regionals. Those captains moved up to the first officers at the majors. Those first officers at the regionals moved across the, the aisle to captain spots. And then they're like, hey, we need first officers. At the time, the schools, institutions like mine, at Delaware State University, others that have aviation programs, we're not just across the board uh, in the United States are not producing enough graduates that are qualified to, to go off and become first officers. So there was already that shortage when we started coming back and the economy started coming back, airlines start flying again, and they're just going like gangbusters everywhere. That exacerbated the shortage. And so now you start to see airlines just they're leaning, what I call leaning forward to our students and saying, hey, what if we invested in you while you're an undergrad and paid for your flight labs, which is the most expensive uh, expense. Now we have people doing that and not trying to give a shout out to anyone in particular, but Alaska Airlines is, is currently doing that for three of our students. They interviewed them and they said, hey, we want to invest in you while you're an undergrad by paying your flight lab fees. And they're for the rest of the time, you know, all you got to do is have a private pilot's certificate and we'll take care of the rest. And I mean, think about the mental burden that that releases for the student, their family, you know, mom and dad who were like, how are we going to pay for this? Goodness, the student loans that you no longer have to incur. That's phenomenal. And so. That's now the new normal when Alaska did that. And so we're hoping that other airlines, and I, I, I predict they will follow suit because but, that's the biggest hindrance for students to become professional pilots. We need to get you connected in with American Airlines, our hub here yeah. at PHL. They would be incredibly interested in something like that. Oh, and, and I'm waiting for that phone call. Trust me. That's the new normal. It's gotten beyond. It used to be, oh, let's do a memorandum of agreement or something like that. And you can use our logo. We can use Mm -hmm. our logo. And that was it. Now, I truly believe that the airlines are looking at flight schools and aviation institutions. And they're saying, if we want them to come to us, we've got to help them in the process rather than wait until they've spent all their money and they're in debt up to their ears and then throw bonuses when they get hired that are only going to raise their taxable income. You know, you go from eating ramen noodles to now you're, you know, first year. 
some of them $165,000 first year, first year. Great. And that's, that's incredible. I love the fact that I'm at a university where we help students achieve that. And we know that we're changing lives. We know that we're changing socioeconomic statuses, not just for them, but for their parents and for their family members and that next generation. And so, and we still have students here who are first time college students in their family, their whole family. And I think about that. It almost makes you want to weep because here, you know, it's 2022 and we still have some who've never in their whole family's line, never been to college. And that's not just minority kids too. We do, we have the majority of our, our students are minority, but that's for anybody who comes to Delaware State University and they can take advantage of those opportunities that are here for everybody. Is your program full? I mean, I would think that you would have kids lined up at the door to enter your program. We have been at capacity every year that I've been here. Obviously there was a little dip because of 2020, but we've come roaring back. Now the capacity isn't just, you know, the number of airplanes I have on hand. I've also got to create and grow my own flight instructors because that's part of the degree program. And so the capacity right now is if I took another 50 students tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to take them and fly them right away because I just don't have enough flight instructors. It seems like all the flight instructors that are out there nationwide are going to the airlines because the opportunities there. And of course, the money is such a great thing. They just can't pass that up. And so it is hard to find seasoned flight instructors. We just have to grow our own. And I traditionally, uh, when a student is about their junior year, that's usually when they're becoming a flight instructor in our aviation program. I hire them back so that they can build hours while they're still finishing the rest of their flight labs and getting their degree. And they're teaching the next generation of freshmen. And so they get that experience. And what I love about that, the feedback I get from the airlines when our students go off after they get their thousand hours, again, within 12 months of graduation, Mm -hmm. is that, hey, your students are really, they're really ready and they know their stuff. And, And I think that's a direct correlation to the fact that I'm allowing them to teach in the aviation program. You know, it's one thing when you have to learn it for yourself. It's another thing when you got to turn around and teach it to another student in a way that they can understand and be successful when they're taking their own evaluations and assessments. And our, our students, the feedback I get is that they're spot on. They're doing well. Uh, We've not had students act a fool or something like that when they go off. I uh, always keep in mind the Colgan air crash of 2009, you know, oh, yeah. as kind of like, hey, if we really train them on the front end and we don't, you know, mince words with them, we're candid with them with assessments and things like that, because I don't want them to pass, get passed along. And then 10 years later, they become this problem, you know, and, and you're riding on the airplane and, you know, you, the, an accident happens. I don't want that. And they're, they're like, hey, that was a Dell State student graduate or something like that. And so I'm always mindful of that. Yeah. We don't pass anyone along. You either get it or not. We do everything we can to help them get it, but they've got to get it. 
that's one concentration, the professional pilot. The other is aviation management because we have students who say, you know, that's great flying, but I don't want to do that. I want to still be in aviation, but I want to do something different. And for instance, like what you're doing, mm-hmm. our aviation management students, they take courses in the College of Business, which is what we're under. So they understand the, the business side as well as be able to speak the language of the aviation side. They get a heavy dose of both. And so they can become a CEO of an airport or an airport manager of a large, medium, or small airport, or go and manage a flight department at some corporation that has aviation assets or go into the airlines or or you name it, go with work with the FAA or other government agencies that have aircraft or aviation assets. And then of course, you know, there's the contractors and things like that that are working in the defense industry and, and other aviation aspects as well. But those are the two mm-hmm. concentrations we have here at Delaware State University. I'm sure my team didn't share this with you because they probably don't know. But when I went into Air Force ROTC, I was too short to become a pilot. My sitting height was too short. So they fixed me from being able to be a pilot. And as a woman (laughs) in the late 80s, early 90s, I couldn't fly fighters anyway because women weren't allowed in combat roles. So I ended up, you know, not, not the most sexy part of the business, but I ended up in finance. And, and procurement in the military. Mm-hmm. And that led me to my love of kind of putting this whole dance together. Yes. How do you create the environment for aviation to succeed? And yeah. I did that in the Air Force. And I, I think that's just a real quick way of saying what we do here. I, I would love to talk to you about some interns. I don't know if you have an internship program, but we would love to maybe grow that here at, at PHL. Absolutely. And now you're speaking our language, you know, and for educators, when you talk about internships, that is, you know, that gets our attention because the cool thing is what you're doing is like the pinnacle of, of a career. And that's what our aviation management students kind of aspire to, you know, and I, I would love to have you come down and talk to our classes as a guest lecturer to kind of talk about your experience, your pathway. And then like, if I were in your shoes right here, what would you do? Or how would you recommend even to a student? Would love to do that. And of course, internships. We've got some, our graduates that are working for you up there. I know, yeah. <laughs> yep, I know we've got some, but I, I, I kind of want to grow it a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, I would be honored to be a guest lecturer and and we've got others at the airport who could do yes. this thing. And I, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'd love to to look for an intern in the CEO's office. Somebody Absolutely. wants to learn what it's like to run a large yes. club airport. Yes. Come, come, come along for the ride. And, and I want you to come to Delaware State University to look for those interns, to get that experience in your facility is just fascinating. There's, there's so many jobs. Most people think, oh, well, Aviation, okay, so pilots, maintainers, you know, flight attendants and baggage handlers, that's about it. But there are so many other jobs, no, not just jobs, but careers in aviation that can be done and need really, really competent people who have a vision and want to take it somewhere. And, And I'd love to have that opportunity 
So let's talk after this way. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> let's good. set that up. Gosh, it's it's been so amazing talking to you. I love hearing your story and your passion for what you do. It's it's no wonder that you're as successful as you are at Delaware State. We're doing this particular podcast as part of our Black History Month program. And we mm-hmm. have a whole slate of activities that we're doing at the airport. But what does Black History Month mean to you? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So it means to me a celebration of achievements. And especially in this in this day and age where somehow Black history is looked on as, oh, we're putting down, say, another race or something like that. It's sad to me that that's the perspective. A lot of things that Black Americans, and not just Americans, but also Blacks and other from other countries and cultures have done, those achievements, they're like, wow, really? You did that? Black History Month is that opportunity to learn about the achievements of African Americans, Black Americans, who you just normally wouldn't be exposed to finding that kind of thing out. And I look forward to it personally, because we have all these articles that are written by various magazines. And, and so my focus is aviation. That's what I pay attention to. That's my muse, if you will. And so when I read these articles, I'm always learning something new. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that person did that or a different perspective. And that's what I celebrate. One of the things that I'm doing with my class is I find articles, you know, from all these magazines or that are written in the news and I try to expose them to it. So I'll print a link and send it out to my class, my university seminar class, which is made up of our freshmen. And every week there's an article that I make them read because I want to expose them to all these great accomplishments because otherwise they are not likely to hear about them. And there's some really cool things that have happened. And the accomplishment that the individual did helped not only him or or her or whoever they were working for or whatever, but it helped the entire human race, you know, or the country or something like that, you know, moved the needle in a different direction that they were going. And so those are the things that I, I celebrate about Black History Month. Oh, that's great. How did you get into aviation to begin with? How did that love of aviation come about for you? So even before I was born, when my dad was younger, his brother would take him to the Dayton Air Show that they had every year and show him the airplanes. They'd walk around and see all the acts that were going on and things like that. And I think that was where dad first said, you know what, this is something I I eventually want to do. He ended up getting drafted in the early 50s into the army. And he only did two years, but he got the GI Bill. And he decided to use the GI Bill to learn how to fly. And he worked for this guy. He owned a bunch of vending machines and his company would restock the vending machines. And the guy owned an airplane of all things. And dad boldly asked him, said, hey, can I use your airplane to get flight training? And the guy said, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. As long as you put the gas in it and the oil, I'll let you do that. I don't want to ever show up and not have fuel in it. And so dad did that. He learned how to fly, got all his ratings, became a flight instructor. Wow. When we came along, dad 
was working at Greene County Airport in Ohio, that right just outside of Dayton. Yep. And as a kid, sometimes he'd take us to the airport. And what was really cool was when he was in an airplane doing flight instruction that had four seats. And he'd ask the student, hey, you mind if my kids jump in the back? And the guy, sure, no problem. So we jump in the back. And I loved that, watching out the window and looking around and feeling how the airplane felt. I knew at age six, I wanted to become a pilot. It just, you know, was fostered. Dad started me with flight instruction in a little air coupe. This airplane, it flew just like you drive. It didn't have any pedals except for a brake pedal. And whenever you wanted to turn to the left, you turn to the left and it did that. And I learned how to fly. And I've got that in my logbook, you know, way back in the early 70s. Wow. And that was really cool. And so that's where I learned to love aviation is because of my dad. So Colonel Hales, I understand that you don't just look at folks who are college age, but you look at really inspiring future pilots at a much, much, much younger age. Can you talk a little bit about that program as well? Yes. So we know we've got to grow the pool, if you will, of future aviation professionals, whether they fly or you know do what you're doing or whatever. And so we have a program here at Delaware State University called the free discovery flights. What it is, is we will offer any potential or or prospective student a free flight. We'll take them flying with a flight instructor. We'll put them in a front seat behind a set of controls and we'll take them out for 30, 40 minutes of just experience, if you will. And usually when they come down, they have a smile on their face and I know I got them at that point. And believe it or not, 90% of our students that are in our aviation program currently, what got them across the goal line was that discovery flight. And we don't charge for that, so it's free. I know I'm planting seeds. I love that phrase, by the way, planting seeds. And so I will go down to age 10. Because if you think about it, 10-year-olds, that's usually when they bring the fire truck to the school. Mm -hmm. And and then afterwards, every kid, at least the the boys, all want to be firemen or police officers or something like that. So why can't we do the same thing with aviation and instill that in them at a very, very young age? And that's why I'll go down to age 10. I'll take a 10-year-old, obviously with their parents' permission, or the parents can come along too, and we'll take them flying. And then I know I've planted that seed, that little maybe couple hundred dollar investment is going to have a great return. You know, our flight lab fees, just our flight lab fees at DSU are $58,305. That's a huge return on that little couple hundred dollar investment, you know, taking a kid flying. And even if they don't come to us and they go into another aviation career, that's a win for the whole industry. So that's something we do. And we've done that for our all the time that I've been here and we have reaped the benefits of it. And it's so interesting to me that other schools aren't doing that, but that's a huge recruiting tool for us. Colonel Hales, I could talk to you all day, Um, (laughs) but we're gonna have to wrap this podcast up at some point. I am so thrilled and honored that you took the time to join us and talk about the program at Delaware State. And I am really excited about our future together. 
that yeah. we might be able to forge a partnership that that would help your students as well as help the airport and bring more amazing people into a career with the thing that you and I both love, which is aviation. Which is aviation. That's right. And is it really a job when you love to go do nope. it, you know, and nope. they pay you to do that? I'm telling you that it's the smell of aviation fuel. It just gets you going yes. every morning, right? <laughs> it does. It does. I used to smell my dad's jacket when he'd come home from flight instructing and, and just, wow, you know. Oh, you're in an airplane today. And I know, I know. It's just, it's just an amazing thing. So anyway, yeah. thank you again so much for joining us. To learn more about Lieutenant Colonel Michael Hales and Delaware State University, please visit desu.edu. And to learn more about Philadelphia International Airport, please visit phl.org newsroom. I'm Shelly Cameron. Thank you for listening.